Have you ever seen the movie Groundhog Day? It's a very funny movie, probably one of Bill Murray's best. It's the story of a TV weatherman who goes or gets sent to uh, the little town in Philadelphia of Puxatawney to witness and report on the Groundhog Day ceremony. It's this weird tradition ceremony that uh, the Americans have, that they go to the, the nest of this creature, the groundhog, and uh, they watch it on because it comes out at the same time of uh, year, on the same day each year, uh, and the legend has it that if it sees its shadow and runs back into its hole, then there's going to be a long winter. There's going to be six more weeks until winter breaks. But if it comes out and stays out, then it means it's going to be an early spring and everything is going to be fine this year. And so he's there to report on this event. He comes a day early, but the town is snowed in. He's set up in the hotel. He wakes up at 6 o'clock in the morning to a piece of music, goes and reports on the thing, goes back to his hotel, falls asleep, but then wakes up the next day at exactly the same time to exactly the same song with the alarm clock going. He walks downstairs and he's greeted the same way and he's living the whole day again. And he's confused, he walks out and it's Groundhog Day again. And he goes through the ceremony, he thinks that's strange and then he wakes up the next day and it happens again. Same alarm time, same song, same greetings, Groundhog Day again and it happens over and over and over and it's very funny as he tries to cope with it all and uh, he's, he's trying to work out how not to be trapped and how do you have the best day ever on this day that keeps repeating. It's very funny as he thinks maybe I could rob the bank, uh, maybe I could try and get the girl and well you have to watch the movie to find out what happens and if he ever gets out of it and it's very funny unless you're going through it yourself. If that was your life every day exactly the same and maybe it feels like that at the moment with COVID and the lockdowns you wake up and see the same walls, you've got to interact with exactly the same people, you've got to drink the same coffee. I hope you've got some different toilet paper squares. Uh, but uh, it just is a feeling of sameness. But I'm talking about the normal times prior to all this and presumably what we'll go back to, sometimes life can feel like it's like that. You wake up Monday morning and you get dressed, you have your breakfast, you get on your train or bus to go to work, which... Uh, it's pretty much the same as every other day, doing the same kinds of activities with the same kinds of people. Uh, and then we come home and get there and uh, sit down, make our dinner, uh, fall asleep on in front of the TV, and then you get up and do the same thing all the next day. And you do that through the days of the week and through the weeks of the year. And But you get to the weekend and... Well, you've got to wash the clothes that are going to get dirty again. You've got to wash the car, which is going to get dirty again. You mow the lawns the same as you did last weekend. And you get to do all of that for 40, 50 years. And then you retire. And then it's just Groundhog Day in slow motion all from there on until, well, until I guess you die. It's just that same feeling of the same thing over and over and over again. And I wonder if maybe that's why in our country we are so occupied by things like Facebook and the, the phone apps with, you know, words with friend or Farmville or we, we binge watch so much TV or are so into sport. 
You know, almost like they become the meaning and purpose of life. I mean, what is football when you think about it? It's just a bunch of grown men chasing a piece of leather around a paddock. I mean, even state of origin, it's exciting. I love it, don't get me wrong, but it's still just a bunch of grown men chasing a leather thing around a football field, around a paddock. Uh, and we elevate it to such importance and, and we're devastated when it's taken away from us even for a short time. We distract ourselves. I think all these things we build into our lives because there's something different, something outside the norm, something that's not Groundhog Day, something we think will uh, be easier than trying to find real answers. See, what does give life meaning and purpose? What is it all about? Why are we here? What does have real value and meaning? What will last? They're the great questions that the book of Ecclesiastes asks. There's a little book in the Bible, it's tucked away in the Old Testament part. It's not read a whole lot, but it asks these profound questions about life and meaning and purpose. It's one of a collection of books in the middle of the Bible that are called wisdom books. The wisdom books stand a little bit aside from the main storyline or the story arc of the Bible. The main story of the Bible goes from Genesis at the start uh, right through to Revelation at the end of the Bible. And essentially it's all about, the whole Bible is about God's rescue plan to, to save people who have walked away from him, who've abandoned him, they've walked away from him who's the source of life. And that rescue mission revolves around the, the focal person of Jesus Christ. But the wisdom books stand a little bit outside that kind of main storyline. They're, they're essentially about how to, how to live and how to get on in our world, how to try and make sense of this world that we live in. And, and there's a whole bunch of them. There's uh, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. It's, it's a love poem, really. It's about being in love. Uh, and so it's not particularly logical, but then what would you expect? I, I actually read the whole of the Song of Songs to Alison uh, after we got married on our honeymoon. She wasn't in particularly impressed when I got to your nose is like the Tower of Damascus uh, leaning out towards Lebanon. Uh, then there's the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, which is all about the logic of the world we live in, that things are made by God in terms of cause and effect. And so act this way and this should be the result. Act this way and it's foolishness because this is going to be the result. It's all about the logic of the world that we live in and, and how we live life. But then there's harder questions and so the book of Job, which is all about suffering and particularly unjust suffering and, and evil. And so what, what, why, where is God when the innocent suffer? That's there in these books in the middle of the Bible. And then there's our book, Ecclesiastes. It, it asks the questions of what gives life meaning and purpose. What is there that, that lasts? What really matters? And I really like it because it won't be put off with, with uh, easy answers or, or things like just because something's entertaining and a distraction doesn't mean that it has any lasting value. So what does really bring purpose to life? Is there an answer? Where can we find it? 
Where does the name Ecclesiastes come from? That's a strange title for a book. Well, in verse 1 of chapter 1, we read this. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. You see the word teacher there. Uh, it's in Hebrew, the language it was written in. It's the word kohelet. Uh, it's a kohelet is someone who teaches people in a large assembly, kind of like a lecturer at a university maybe, someone who gets the crowd together and addresses them and teaches them. Uh, the Greek word for a crowd is ecclesia, uh, from which we get the word ecclesiastical church. It's a gathering. And so he's teaching the crowd. He's a teacher of a crowd and the crowd, we are the crowd who are reading it, and hence the term Ecclesiastes. Who is it that's speaking? Well, he calls himself this Kohelet, the teacher. He calls himself the son of David. He calls himself the king in Jerusalem. And also in chapter 1, in verse 12, he says he, he was the king over Israel. And it may well be that it's King Solomon, who was David's son, who uh, became king after King David, and he was the greatest, the richest, and the most prosperous of all the kings of Israel. There's lots in the book to say uh, it was him. Uh, when uh, God spoke to Solomon at the start of his reign, he said, ask for anything, and Solomon said, well, I want wisdom, wisdom to know how to rule, and God thought that was a great answer, and this is a book of wisdom. He was the patron of all the wisdom literature. Uh, he lived and reigned about a 1,000 BC, and, and it might well be that at the end of his life, Solomon looked at all of his achievements, and there were many great achievements, and wrote down this book as he reflected on it all. But the book never actually says that it's Solomon. And so it could have been someone else later, writing more or less through the eyes of Solomon, who says, I'm... I'm looking for meaning and purpose in life. What would Solomon have seen? What would Solomon have said? And using Solomon's famous sayings and writings uh, to try and discover if there's any answers. I'm just going to call him Solomon uh, through this series instead of the writer. And Solomon begins in verse 2 by, by telling us how life appears to be, what, what it looks like. If you think about it, he says, verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Very positive start, right? What does he mean, meaningless, that everything seems to be meaningless? Well, it's the Hebrew word that gets used 38 times for the book, the word chevel, chevel. Uh, hevel means vapor. It's, it's something that's, that's there and then it's gone. It disappears. Uh, Andrew Emmett and I, uh, rode out to Camden the other day and as we were going, it was very early in the morning, but it seemed to get colder and colder and we stopped at Camden and you could just see the breath coming out of our mouths. And it, it, it's, that's, that's what hevel means. It's, it's like that breath, that vapour, it comes out and then it vanishes. The vapour's there for a second and then, and then it's gone. That's what Hevel means. It's vapour, it's transitory, it's insubstantial. It's also translated in other parts of the Bible as, as trivial or maybe worthless. 
Uh, the Greeks, when they translated into their language, they, they used the word for futility. And he's saying everything in life, when you really stop and look hard at it, is totally, utterly meaningless. It's a vapour. It's a mist. It might seem so substantial each thing as we see it and use it and, and have it, but, but it all goes. And then he sets out for, for 12 chapters to prove it, to look at life and, and what we as humans do to try and fill our life and our time and what we do to try and find meaning and purpose in all sorts of different ways. And essentially he tries to measure if something does have any lasting value, if there's anything permanent. And he does it by asking the question again and again and again and trying to answer it. Here's the question. It'll keep coming up, but it's here in verse 3 of chapter 1. What does a man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? What's the profit What's the bottom line? What's the, what's the surplus at the end of it all? What's left over and continues after we've done all these things? The word work there, it's labour, it's hard work, it can mean drudgery. And he says really for all of our busyness, for all of our work and our energy that we expend, for all of our labouring and being tired, we rush around, we do stuff, that we go to bed tired, we wake up tired the next day and we go through it day after day, year after year. What is it all worth at the end? What does it all amount to? What, what lasts? What's the profit? And he, as he goes along, he tries to, to find meaning and purpose in exactly the same kinds of things that people are still trying to find meaning and purpose in today because they're the same things that have been sought after and people have thought of the answers right throughout history and will continue on. And he starts by looking at the world around us. What's, what's planet Earth like as a whole and, and what does the way the world is like and our observations of the world teach us about life? And so chapter 1 and verse 4, here's his observation. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The point being that we're so insignificant in terms of time. We're just here for a moment ourselves and then we're gone. When I proposed to Alison way back many years ago, 2007, if I've got it right, honey. Uh, uh, it was in the revolving restaurant at the top of Centrepoint Tower, uh, not the buffet, the, the really expensive one on the next level. Uh, and it's a long way up. And uh, it's also the most expensive meal I've ever had and likely will ever have. Uh, it was worth it because she said yes, of course. But but you're up there and it takes about, oh, what, uh, uh, 20, no, is it 20 minutes to, to do the full revolution of the city? Maybe it's an hour, 20. I've forgotten how fast it was. The evening's a bit of a blur. But 
but you're looking out over this vast expanse of the city and you can see Port Bodney, you can see the, the Sutherland Shire. Uh, of course, they're the only parts of Sydney that I thought were worth looking at having grown up there. But uh, you're looking at and you, then you look down, right down uh, below the window if you've got a window seat, and you can see these tiny little things that look like ants kind of running around. And you realise that they're people and they're tiny compared to the whole breadth of the city, insignificant. They're, they're, they're small in terms of the world and in terms of the universe. And, and that's what Solomon sees. But he also sees the monotony of the world. See verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. Now, he's not celebrating the consistency of nature. He's saying it's always the same. It just goes on and on in endless routine, and it does it without us. It just goes about its business the same over and over. The sun keeps coming up and going down in regular monotony. People's lives are, are blinking into and out of existence. And, and worse, nothing's ever achieved. And so verse 7, All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. And it's kind of like a, a cosmic painting of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Uh, it's never finished. It's never done. It's never achieved. They start, the painters start at one end, at one pylon, and they start painting along, and they, it takes them quite a long time, it takes them a couple of years to fully get to the other side of the harbour bridge, and they get to the second pylon, but by the time they get there, the, the first side started to rust again because of the salt air. And so they have to go back and start again. And so there's just someone whose job it is to continually paint the harbour bridge. And it makes it all seem fairly futile. And so verse 8, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. You can get bored with anything. That's what he's saying. And yet at the same time, we're, we're never satisfied with what we've got. Even something as exciting as, say, a roller coaster. Nothing more exciting than the loop-the-loop on a roller coaster. Well, you've been on the same one a couple of times and had to queue for an hour to get on each time and you start to think, it's not worth it. And you need a bigger one with more loop-the-loops and more adrenaline uh, to get the same rush. Have you ever looked at the staff at an amusement park? They're not amused. <laughs> they're, they're bored out of their brains. It is tedious. And so are the visitors after a few hours there. It doesn't matter what you do, it will become boring eventually. But despite that second half of verse 8, he says we're never satisfied. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. And so the travel bug, uh, a friend of mine a few years ago went off to Europe for a three-month trip and she said, I just want to get it out of my system so I can say I've done it and then I'll come back and I'll get a job and I'll find a boy and get married and settle down. And uh, she came back and was she more settled? Was she satisfied? Have we ever seen her again? No, she's been constantly overseas. She's never satisfied. Even something as, as trivial as... Uh, 
television. Surely now there is enough to watch on the goggle box. Uh, we, we used to only have five channels. Can you believe that? We only had five channels. Uh, and they didn't even go all day. They, they stopped at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and you got the, the, the pattern. Now there's at least 20 free-to-air channels on regular TV, and they go 24 hours a day, many of them. But that's not enough. And so we, we've got video libraries with thousands of movies. That'll satisfy us, won't it? No. Uh, so, so streaming, that's got to be the answer. Now, now that would be something, wouldn't it? If we could watch anything that has ever been filmed, any show that we ever wanted to watch, if we just buy enough subscriptions. But if you ever sat on Netflix or Stan and just gone, nah, 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 nah. The luster rubs off everything. TVs, buy the brand new car and then, you know, you think this is really great until maybe a few weeks later and then you're thinking about the next one and the new car smells gone. Uh, even things like relationships. Now, you, you go into marriage thinking that this romance is only gonna, it's gonna last forever and it's just gonna get better and better, the beating hearts and the sweaty palms and, and, and while your love may deepen over time, you, you won't have the same palpitating heart every time he walks in the room or she walks in the room. It doesn't matter what you do, it will become boring, tedious. And so you think you'll find fulfillment in the next thing and, and the next thing and the thing after that. And then you have your midlife crisis and kind of dump a whole lot of stuff and make some huge changes. And so his conclusion in verse 9, what has been will be again. What has been done has been, uh, will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which someone could say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. It's just been the same over and over and over again. In world affairs, nations rise and nations fall. In national affairs, the economy's up, then the economy's down. The libs are in and then it's Labor's turn and back again in our, in our personal lives. We're born, we live, we die, and just like everyone else has ever done. And it only gets worse because, verse 11, no one's going to remember us. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow Neil deGrasse Tyson was interviewed by Larry King and he was saying he would like to think of eternal life as being remembered for generations to come. But who remembers the famous, how many famous people from before the 20th century do you know the names of? Maybe, maybe 200 out of the billions of people who've ever lived. And Larry King said, that's not immortality. Who would you rather be, Albert Einstein, or would you rather be you right now? Because Albert Einstein's dead. And Neil deGrasse Tyson said, good point. I'll have to think about it. But let me give you some, some names from history, see if you know who they are. John Watson, uh, George Reed, Joseph Cook. Uh, anyone know who those were? Oh, they were just Australian prime ministers. Top job in the country. 
uh, in the last hundred years, but 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 no one knows who they are. I, I didn't know either. I cheated and I had to Google it because no one remembers. But you say, no, our family are going to remember us. Well, do you remember them? You know, your, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents and the generations before that, we might be able to go on ancestry and trace something of our family tree and maybe get a name, but we know nothing about them. They must have existed because, well, we're here now. We want to make our marks on the world, but do you think anyone is going to remember? And that's just his warm-up. That's how he gets going. And, and it's no wonder in a world like that where time rolls on and on and that people try and search for meaning and purpose in anything and everything. And, and that's what Solomon goes on to talk about, how, how he tried to fill his life and his days with something, anything, to try and find meaning and purpose and to distract himself, distract himself from this world which appears just to go on forever in endless routine where we're only here for five minutes ourselves and, and even that five minutes of our lives gets tedious and nothing ever changes and no one will remember us. Now here's the thing. Why does that feel wrong? Why can't we just say, yep, well, that's the way the world is, and so let's play some more Candy Crush or, you know, watch some ice hockey or whatever we're into. Why can't we just distract ourselves because, well, there's nothing else we can do. Why don't we just go and play more Pokemon Go or whatever the next thing happens to be? Why do we say to ourselves and why do we feel in our bones that it doesn't feel right? It doesn't feel right. There's got to be more to it. There's got to be more to life. Why has every society in human history tried to find meaning and purpose? Why? Because we're hardwired that way. That's why. We're hardwired that way and that's why it doesn't feel right. And it's not right. It's not the way it was meant to be. Our Creator made us to know Him and to relate to Him and uh, to have meaning and purpose and joy in Him. That feeling of frustration and futility and emptiness, it, it's actually the heavy hand of God on our world. It's the heavy hand of God. And I want to show you what the Apostle Paul writes as he writes to the Christians in, in Rome and he talks about this kind of burden that God has laid upon our world and upon us. It's in Romans chapter 8 and I'll pick it up from verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Now, I've been there through three childbirths, uh, and they're my own, if you want to know, um, and uh, painful stuff. Whether it's cesarean or by natural birth, it is, it's horrible, the pains of childbirth. But that word frustration there that he uses, that, that God has subjected this world to frustration, it's the same word 
that's used in Ecclesiastes. It's that meaningless word, chevel. You translate that into Greek and in, into English and it's, it's this frustration word. He's saying that it's, it's meaningless. It's, it's a breath. It's a vapor. That feeling of, of Groundhog Day, that's something that God has placed upon our world. Now, why would God do that? Why would he bring this sense of frustration and futility and emptiness? Why? Because the world has walked away from God, who is, who is the source of life. And because we've walked away from the source of life, we feel it. It's not the way it should be. And, and just as pain indicates that something's wrong with our body and we should go to a doctor and do something about it, so that feeling of futility that shows something's wrong with our world, something is fundamentally astray, it's an indicator. And hence the Bible's great story of God's rescue mission to save us from the consequences of us having walked away from him. Now you might think, well, there's got to be something that, that gives life meaning and purpose. And that's why you should tune back in over the next few weeks as we walk with Solomon and we follow his journey and his quest to find that meaning and purpose. And the test he's going to apply is what lasts, what endures, what, what ultimately is not just vapour. Now, it might be a little disturbing. I pick up this book and I read it and, and it keeps me asking, Am I living for something that really endures, something that does last? Or, or am I living for something that's just trivial and temporary, something that is going to fade and disappear? And, and it's worth asking the hard questions. It's worth doing that self-examination. It's worth reading through and asking these questions about life. And when he gets to the end, he does have an answer there is something that will last, something that does provide meaning and purpose, that something that, that if we embrace it is life-changing. It, it changes everything. It's, it's utterly transforming if you get it. Now, you can read ahead if you like. Uh, I won't stop you doing that. But, but come back each week and join us as we work at it together and see why all these other things that people fill their lives with to try and find meaning and purpose just don't work in the end. Next week we begin the journey uh, with Solomon as he, as he seeks to find the things that give life meaning and purpose. Uh, and he tackles four of the big things that uh, the people still today and always have, have tried to fill their lives with. Pleasure, alcohol, creativity, the arts and, and, and gardening and great things of beauty, and finally education. Do they deliver? Can you find meaning and purpose, something that lasts in, in any of those things? And I think what he's got to say is, is fascinating and it's deeply challenging. I hope you'll be able to join us in the search for meaning. I'll lead us in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that you teach us to look critically at ourselves and at our world, and the way life is. And we thank you that, as we've heard, uh, as we take a deep, hard look with Solomon and even by ourselves, we can see the futility that's there, the emptiness 
in the things that people try and fill their lives with. Father, help us to know that you alone can provide something different. You alone endure and you give us something in life that will endure in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that knowing you in the end is not futile, that Jesus rescues us from all of this, gives us new purpose and gives us an eternity, gives us life now and life into the future. And we thank you that changes everything. And so help us not to put our hopes and our trust in the things that will fail and fade and disappear. Help us when we're bored with the tediousness of the world as we see what Solomon sees, things just coming and going the same as they've ever been and the dissatisfaction of never being filled. Help us to run to you, the Creator. You have subjected this world to frustration and you are the only one who can liberate it uh, liberate us from that frustration. And so we ask that you would do that in Jesus Christ. Amen.